When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, American government and civics. Feels like it's been forever since we did one of these. Uh, and that's because this unit has been so long. So unit three has been uh, dragging on, it feels like. Uh, but it's because we've covered so much. We have covered the legislative branch, plus the political uh, participation stuff, plus a little bit of civic participation. So we've covered quite a bit. Um, and so this review... Uh, tries to cover most everything that we've gone over. The review can be found on our eGlass page if you want the hard copy in front of you or just listen and uh, learn. All righty. So let's get going. First off, the House and Senate. So there are a lot of questions on the test about the House and the Senate. Some of them are comparing the two. Some of them are separate. So we'll just go through the list of stuff that's there. Uh, And just be aware that you'll have to apply some of this stuff. It's not going to just be, oh, hey, the age to be a House member is 25. That gets me the answer. You need to know that, and you're going to have to apply it to some of the questions. Okay? Uh, All right. So first off, the the age for the House and the Senate. Uh, For the House, you got to be 25 years old. So y'all are about seven years away, maybe eight years away. Um, I'll be about ready to retire. So when you make your run for the House, Keep me in mind as some kind of aid or something like that. I'll come work for you. All righty. Uh, on the Senate side, you got to be 30. So y'all got a little bit more time before you can be a senator. Uh, I'll definitely be retired when you go to make your run for the Senate. Residency, you have to live in the state for both of them. So House and Senate, you have to live in the state. Now, on the House side, that is the districts. Remember, it's broken into districts. So Georgia has 14. There's no requirement to live in the district. However, it is going to be important to live in the district because your opponent will use that against you if you do not. Citizenship. On the House side, you have to have been a citizen for seven years. And on the Senate side, you have to have been a citizen for nine years. So you can be a naturalized citizen and be a part of the House and the Senate. The term length. On the House side, a term is two years. On the Senate side, it is six years. And just know this, um, on the House side, you run every two years. There's no really time to do much of anything other than get ready to run, you know, plus your legislation that you're trying to work work on and all that kind of stuff. But re-election's always in the back of your mind. On the Senate side, uh, you got some more time. With the six years, you got some time to settle in and kind of get the lay of the land and then get to work. And then we're at re-election a couple years later. Term limits? Well, there are none. All right. House, you can be a career House member. Senate, you can be a career senator. There are no term limits. The seats, there are 435 on the House side and 100 on the Senate side. So the 435 from the House, uh, that is determined by the state's population. So the bigger states have more people, the smaller states have less. There are some states that only have one representative. On the Senate side, it'll always be two. 
and that's how the seats are determined. So I just answered that. Uh, the duties. So on the House side, you got to remember this. On the House side, representatives are supposed to be closer to us, the citizens, the constituents, because they represent less people. Okay. Uh, and so they're supposed to be more in tune with the needs of the citizens. The senators are supposed to be more about the state as a whole. Because think about the wide variety of people that state senators have to <coughs> represent. You know, Just here in Georgia, you've got the metro area who needs one thing. You've got uh, the rural farming areas that need another thing. And the state senators have to take into account all of those individuals. House members, you know, there's a wide variety of people here in Gwinnett, but uh, we're a little bit less diversified than the whole state as a whole. All right, the Senate filibuster and cloture. So a filibuster is a Senate-only power, and this is uh, a tool for the minority party. Okay, the majority party is not going to filibuster. So the minority party, in an effort to stop a piece of legislation, will filibuster. And that means they're going to take as much time as possible during the debate. And so a senator will get up and use their time, and they will talk and 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 keep on going. Uh, the record for the longest filibuster is 24 hours. 24 hours and some change. I can't remember the exact time, but it was a long time. I probably wouldn't have sat through it. Okay. The goal, you're going to oftentimes hear the goal, well, we want to kill this piece of legislation. You don't kill a piece of legislation with a filibuster. The goal is to delay as much as you can. Think about all the things that the Senate has to get done within their, their session. And the majority party is working to get their agenda pushed through. So if you delay as the minority party, if you can delay long enough, You've just backed up the whole Senate process and all that legislation that's coming that the majority party wants to get done. So your goal is to put pressure on the majority party to either give in and give up or maybe give some concessions and say, OK, we know you don't like this part of that bill. If you'll stop your filibuster, we'll make this change. OK, so, I mean, you can kind of kill a bill with a filibuster, but your real goal at the end of the day is to delay action on everything else and put pressure on the majority party. Now, the majority party can end a filibuster. It's called a cloture vote. Uh, and all cloture vote means is, hey, I make a motion to end debate. Okay. Uh, and if you get 60 other senators, senators, that's six zero, so 60, to say, yes, we want to end debate, then the filibuster is over and debate stops, and we just vote on the bill, okay? Uh, it is called a supermajority, that's 60, because then the majority party can really do whatever they want to. I could get up there and start filibustering, and, hey, two minutes in, someone stands up and says, I'll make a cloture motion. And if there's 60 that say yes, my time is done. My time is up. I don't even get to start my filibuster, really. All right, Citizens United versus the FEC. So first off, the FEC stands for the Federal Elections Commission. And Citizens United was a group, an interest group type thing. And they were um, taking money. Okay, that sounds bad. They were taking donations. 
all right, legit donations from businesses and corporations and, and groups like that. They, in 2008-ish, this was the time when Hillary Clinton was running against Barack Obama for the Democratic nomination. Okay, so this is a long time ago now. Uh, they made a movie about Hillary Clinton. They weren't big fans of her. You can go watch the trailer for the movie. You can watch the whole trailer. I think it's on Hulu and some other streaming services. I've never watched the full movie. I've just watched the trailer. Anyways, uh, it did not make Hillary Clinton look very good. Just watch the trailer and you'll get the impression, hey, Hillary's not a good person. Um, anyways, the FEC put a halt to the movie, all right, because it violated a couple things. It violated a time thing, a time frame where uh, political ads like this could not be run 30 days outside of a primary. And it also violated some, some contribution things where big businesses and corporations could not uh, give the money um, and have it be used for this type of ad and things like that. So Citizens United is upset because they've spent all this time and effort on this movie. And now the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, is saying, no, you can't do that. So it goes to court. <clears throat> the Supreme Court gets a hold of it. And the main thing to take away, okay, if you can remember this, uh, for any multiple choice question, you're typically going to be in good shape. It is that the Supreme Court tied to political donations, so the money, to free speech. Okay, that's the key thing to remember, free speech. Um, <laughs> basically, they said, hey, corporations, businesses, some economic stuff that you got last semester, This, these are individuals. Okay, so corporation is an individual. They have free speech. They can't talk, but they practice their free speech through their campaign donations. And so they they kind of unlocked the donations uh, to allow uh, businesses and corporations to donate money. All right, next up, congressional checks on the president. Veto override is a pretty simple one. The president will do that person next uh, in our next unit. But uh, if the president vetoes something, Congress can always override it. You got to remember the number, two-thirds of the full Congress. So it's 535. Seems, I mean, excuse me, two-thirds of 535 is 467. That was, math is dumb. Anyways, uh, they can override that veto. It sounds like it's something that will happen all the time, but vetoes are pretty hard to override because that is a big number. Okay, it is a big number. Uh, declare war. Both House and Senate vote on this. Uh, the president cannot declare war. The president does have some things they can do with the military, but they will not be able to declare war. That is a congressional power. Impeachment. Impeachment happens <clears throat> in two steps. First off, to be impeached, all you have to do is be charged by the House. So anybody in the House can draw up articles of impeachment and present them. And then if the Speaker wants to push the issue, they will take it to a vote. Okay, simple majority gets you impeached. We've had several presidents impeached. Johnson, Clinton, and then Trump twice, okay? Um, we've never had one removed because the second step is the trial and the vote, and that happens on the Senate side. And the Senate would have to vote to kick you out uh, with a two-thirds vote. So please, if you take nothing else from this class, if you take nothing else from this podcast, please, 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 please don't ever, ever say to me or in conversation with anybody that impeachment is being removed from office. You can be impeached and you can stay in office. Impeachment is just the charges. You still have to be removed by the Senate. The funds uh, 
all revenue things, all revenue bills have to start on the house side because, like I said earlier, they're supposed to be closer to the people. Consent and advice, that is the Senate ability, power, authority, whatever you want to call it, to uh, confirm appointments. So think of Supreme Court justices, federal judges, <clears throat> excuse me, treaties with other countries had to go through the, the Senate approval. Uh, appointments to the, the uh, cabinet positions have to go through Senate approval. So that's what we're talking about when we say consent and advice. That is a Senate only power, just like the funds is a house thing. All right, I'm going to take a break and we'll be right back. Hello and welcome back. All right, let's pick up with how a bill becomes a law. So uh, this is a long, drawn out process. I'm going to try to hit the highlights so as to not just drag on uh, with this. First off, you need to know this. A bill starts on one side. It goes through the process it gets passed, it has to go to the other side. So any bill that passes in the House has got to go to the Senate and pass there. And any bill that starts on the Senate side has to get through that process and then cross over to the other side. A lot of bills will die on the other side, especially if they're divided, like we are now with a Republican-controlled House and a Democrat-controlled Senate. They're just not working together. So let's start on the House side. A bill is passed, or excuse me, introduced by anybody in the House. It's given a name, and it's assigned to a committee. The committee is where most of the work for a bill takes place. That group of people have the ability to have hearings on that bill, to edit it, make changes to it. Uh, they can kill the bill in the committee. In fact, most bills will die just by sitting in a committee. But they, that's where most of the work takes place because you can't really do work on a bill with 435 people on the House side or even with 100 on the Senate side. It'd just be too many. So they work on it on the committee. They pass it. On the House side, it goes to something called the Rules Committee, who set the rules for debate, and then it goes to the full floor for debate. The House is limited to one hour, and they talk and discuss it, and then it is voted on. If it passes, then it crosses over to the Senate and it starts over with that process. All right. Um, if they pass it as is, it goes to the president for signature and then it can become a bill. Now, that was done in about a minute, minute and a half. In real life, it takes a long time to get a bill passed. Um, the committees. So you've got four. You've got the standing committee. That is the permanent committees. They are there from session to session. So I mentioned the Rules Committee just a minute ago. Uh, that's been around since 1790 or so. All right. Um, they will be there. And they're just a, a basically a topical committee. So education, environment, whatever, you know, Judiciary Committee on the Senate side, whatever it might be. And they handle those issues. And a bill gets passed, uh, and it will be assigned to one of those standing committees or excuse me, introduced, I keep on saying pass, I'm so sorry. A bill is introduced, it goes to one of those committees. Joint and select, uh, I don't think they're on the test if I remember correctly, but I'm gonna mention them anyways, just so you know, in case you ever hear them come up. Uh, the joint committee is uh, a committee that is combined of the House and the Senate, and they're typically going to put out some kind of information to the public. So the 9-11 report, there's a whole book 
that you can read. Uh, it was a committee for um, <laughs> the information that happened there. Okay. Um, mm -hmm, no problem. <clears throat> they don't meet very often. Uh, the select committee is another temporary committee and they happen only so often and it's an investigatory committee. Now they will be house select or Senate select. They don't cross over. There's the combo. Okay. Um, and they just investigate something that happened. So the January 6th committee was a house committee that was investigating January 6th, uh, in the last congressional se session, there was a Watergate special committee, select committee, excuse me, that investigated, uh, the Watergate break-in. So on and so forth. Conference committee, this happens when a bill passes the House in one version and the Senate in another. They will come together and they will sort out the differences. So a bill has to pass to the president the same on both sides. They cannot send a bill to the president that says one thing from the House and another thing from the Senate. It has to be the same exact bill. So let's say it deals with money and let's say the House wants to spend $100 million and the Senate wants to spend uh, $1 million. They just meet in the middle there. Let's go 50 million. Okay. That'd be easy, but it's always not, it's not always that easy uh, as there is a lot of work that goes here, but the conference committee will sort out those differences. They will vote on it and then send it back uh, to their house and the Senate. Once it passes the conference committee it's probably going to pass the house and the Senate political action committees. These are PACs. This is just a fundraising vehicle of interest groups, businesses, corporations, individuals, unions, we could start up a pack in this class if we wanted to. And basically we just uh, take donations and then we spend it on the different political candidates that we want to see win office. So don't get tripped up. Don't get uh, worried. A pack is just a, a way to raise money and get around some of the limits that have been placed on people uh, as far as donating, donating money goes. Uh, leadership on the house side, You've got the Speaker of the House as the main person and probably the most powerful person in all of Congress. Okay. But it is, they are only on the House side. They typically come from the majority party because the majority party will vote and have the most votes. And so the House will vote for who they want to be the Speaker of the House. And typically it's going to be uh, from the, the majority party. They get to dictate to the House almost everything, the agenda, committee work, who's on committees, uh, almost everything. So very powerful position. After that, you've got the majority leader, who's kind of the right-hand person of the Speaker of the House. Uh, and they are going to work with the, the majority party to make sure that the bills that they want passed are, are passing uh, and that the agenda that they want to push is being pushed. Then you have a minority leader on the House side who really can't do much. They don't have many tools, many power powers uh, to do anything. And so it's more of just let's wait until we become the majority. And then you've got the whips and both majority and minorities have whips. And we're talking about political parties there. So there are Republican whips and there are minority and uh, Democrat whips. Right now, the Republicans are the majority. Whips are just um, basically, I don't want to say assistants because they're they're more powerful than that. But they're the ones that are going to work with the, the rank and file, the everyday House members, the everyday senators. Okay. Um, and make sure that you're voting the way you're supposed to be voting with the party. 
Uh, maybe you have problems or issues that you go talk to the, the majority whip, the minority whip about, and they'll run it up the chain to the leadership. On the Senate side, the official president of the Senate is the vice president, but they're never there because they can't take part in the debate, so they just don't go. Uh, so instead, we have something called the president pro tempore. It's an honorary position mainly. They don't really have any power, any authority. It's not like the Speaker of the House. Please don't ever say there's a Speaker of the Senate. Oh, my gosh, please never say that. So that's, that's like the impeachment thing. Please never say that. Okay. Uh, the real leadership is the majority and minority leaders. The majority leader really gets to dictate what gets done. However, they are supposed to work together. Okay. Now, the minority party leader in the Senate has a little bit more power because they do have things like the filibuster. They have things like holds uh, and other tools that they can use to kind of trip up the majority party and get them to do what they want them to do. And then there's whips in the Senate as well that do the same thing that they do in the House. All right, let's take one last break, and I'll be right back to wrap this thing up. All right, welcome back. Let's wrap this thing up. So picking up with the very last few things there, the 17th Amendment. Uh, the 17th Amendment happened during the Progressive Era. You probably talked about this in U.S. history uh, during that time with the, the 17th and 19th Amendment. Uh, and a few other reforms that were done on the political scene, recalls and, and things like that. Uh, but the 17th Amendment is what gave us as citizens direct election of our state senators. So up to that point, um, the framers had made it to where there was uh, <clears throat> a pick by the state legislature of the senators. So Madison had proposed, you know, the two houses. He had said, let's have an upper house and a lower house. The lower house was going to be picked by the people for him, and the upper house was supposed to be the elite and therefore picked by what Madison considered the elite, and it turned into the state legislatures. Uh, so the 17th Amendment was passed to give people more of a voice, more of a say-so in who's representing them in the Senate. The Necessary and Proper Clause, this is the clause we did this way back in Unit uh, 2, and this is one where it allows Congress to stretch their powers. You might see it as the elastic clause as well, but it is going to uh, give Congress the ability, as long as they are doing something that is contained in the Constitution, they can kind of work outside. They can kind of um, <clears throat> make it, not make it, but if they can connect it to something in the Constitution, they're probably going to be able to do it. The election cycles. So, we have the general election. That's the one that's coming up in 2024. Uh, you'll go vote in November in the general election. Uh, we also have something called the midterms. The midterms is where there's no presidential election. It's in the middle of the president's term, and you're just going to be voting for your congresspeople. Reapportionment, redistricting, and gerrymandering. So for this, <clears throat> uh, we got to be sure we understand all three and then we don't confuse the three. So first up, reapportionment. This is what happens when the numbers in the House, remember we said already there's 435 members of the House, and the distribution of that 435 is dependent upon a state's population. That 435 is not changing. There's not going to be more. There's not going to be less. It's going to be 435. But what happens when a state's population changes, when there's more people or less people? 
That's where reapportionment comes in. And so every 10 years in this country, we have the census. That's the official counting of the population. And this is what's going to determine how many people you have in the House. So in the most recent census, in the most recent reshuffling of the House seats, you had several states that gained population and therefore gained a seat. So to our south, Florida went from 27 House members, 27 districts, to 28. So they gained a seat. Texas gained two seats. A couple other places gained some seats as well. When they gain a seat, something has to happen to another state. Another state has to lose seats. So in order for a state to gain a seat in the House because of their population gains, that means that another state has had to have lost population. So Ohio lost a seat because they lost people. Pennsylvania lost population and therefore lost a seat. New York, California, a couple of other places lost population. But the reshuffling of the House seats, this is not a Senate thing. There will always be two senators per state, therefore 100. Okay. Uh, On the House side, though, you have to reshuffle every 10 years because we have population shifts and population changes. Now, that leads us to redistricting. Redistricting happens because there's population shifts within the states. Now, the states that gain seats and lose seats, they have to redistrict. There's no choice. There's no way for Florida to have 28 districts but have only lines drawn for 27. They had to redraw the districts to make it 28. Ohio, they had to redraw because they dropped a district. There's no way to have a district without a representative. So they had to redraw. So the states that gain or loot, lose, not loot, uh, that lose seats are going to have to redistrict. Other states will choose to redistrict. So Georgia redistricted after the 2020 census because we have population shifts uh, within our country, uh, within our state. Sorry, I'm all over the place. Uh, within our state because people are moving to the metro area, leaving rural areas, so on and so forth. Uh, We have movement. And the goal is to try and get one representative per about 800,000 people. Now, that number could be plus or minus a couple thousand, all right, on either side. Uh, But if you can think, hey, they want to try and keep it as equal as possible, and they want one person to represent around 800,000, you should be in pretty good shape. So reapportionment happens, which leads to redistricting. And redistricting can lead to gerrymandering. Now, gerrymandering happens because it is the state legislatures that do the redistricting. So they draw up the maps, do a proposal, have a vote, uh, and then they happen. Gerrymandering is when a party draws up the lines to give themselves an unfair advantage. So maybe they try and take away this segment of voters from that segment of voters and reduce the voting power. Maybe they... add voters that would vote one way to another group of voters that would vote one way and basically take away their power because while in two districts they would have had two seats, now they've rolled them into one and so uh, they've neutralized their voting power. So gerrymandering is a way to make sure that you are going to maintain your control of the state legislature. It is legal. It does happen. The lines can be challenged. So 
there are groups out there that will look at and watch the lines. And if they feel like the lines are unfair and unfairly drawn, down racial lines, down um, you know, made something too big, too small, whatever it might be, any, any number of things can be challenged, uh, then they can take it to court. Finally, participation in the political process. So the number one way that anybody listening to this podcast will ever take part in the political process is by going to vote. That's just how it is. That's the only thing I've done. Other than one time, I put up a sign for the principal that gave me my first job in Gwinnett County. She had retired from education. She had run for a state seat, and she won. And then she lost her re-election bid, was running to try and get her seat back. I saw her out and about, started talking to her. She's like, hey, I'm running again. Can you put up a sign for me? Sure. You gave me my first job. The least I can do for you is that. So that's that's the only other thing I've done other than go vote. And that's what most of us will do. Other ways we can participate, though, donate money. So maybe if you want to give money to an interest group, give money to a candidate, to a political party. I don't recommend it. You can if you want to. Okay. Uh, but keep your money. All righty. Uh, maybe you take part in something that the political parties are doing. Maybe you go to a rally. Maybe you take part in something that interest groups doing. Okay, so there are other ways to participate in the political process. All right, that is the review, guys. If you have questions or concerns before we take the test, please reach out. Please either stop by during the day and see me, stop by during the seventh period. I'm here every day. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're more than welcome to spend this time in the room uh, talking with me, uh, working with me, whatever you need to help you uh, with the material. Uh, luckily, you know, it's not something that's truly needing a whole bunch of assistance. Uh, it's really just getting the work done. Uh, but if you ever need anything, just know I am here uh, to help you and assist you. Guys, best of luck uh, on this test, and I will see you on Tuesday in class, and then uh, we'll get Unit 4 going and get that done uh, before uh, spring break. All right, guys, take care. Bye-bye.